Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. I'm really excited to be together, really excited about the baptisms we're going to see in just a few minutes. And my role this morning is to take a few minutes to try and help us understand a bit more of what we're going to do. Why are we sticking three people into a tub of, I hope, warm water, ducking them under, bringing them up, up again, and cheering? I want to help explain it a bit, see, it's odd, explain it a bit, and take a bit of a different approach. We're going to start today with the story of Noah. Noah and the ark and the flood and the animals, a really famous story, probably something you know at least from school, even if not from any church context. But maybe a story we kind of think, I know it's in the Bible, but I don't quite know why. Maybe we think I don't really get the relevance of this story to my life. But what I want to try and show us today is that the story of Noah and the ark is meant to be a trailer for something bigger and something better. But not when you go to the cinema, you pay your money, you go sit down, and before you get to see the thing you've paid for, you sit through a good half an hour of trailers, things giving you a flavor of something that's coming in the future, telling you about it. And I think Noah and the Ark, they're meant to be like that for us. And ultimately, the thing they're pointing, it's pointing us to is also the same thing that baptism is a kind of representation of, a picture of. So we're going to start just by unpicking this story together. We're going to try and bring it to life, so I hope you're up for that. I'm going to be reading bits of the story. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Genesis. The story is in chapters 6 through to 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing, so it's quite long. But there'll be bits of it I read out, and they'll come up on the screen behind me as well. So we start the story with a problem. God looks down on the earth, and he sees a big, big problem. This is how the author starts. Chapter 6, this is verse 5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he'd ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. The story starts with a problem. A big problem. Humans have gone bad. God looks down across the earth and he sees the great extent of wickedness of the humans he'd made. You see, God had made humans to live with him. He'd made a perfect creation and perfect people to to be with him, to be living in this wonderful garden he planted in relationship with him. He'd made humans, he'd made us to find true fulfillment by living his way. You know, you find true fulfillment by living in line with your purpose. And the purpose of these people was to live God's way, and that's where they would find true fulfillment. A fish finds true fulfillment by living in water. We would not find true fulfillment by living underwater, because we're not created and designed to live underwater. And these humans were designed to live God's way, to to stick on his path. That was where true fullness of life was going to be found. But, we probably know the story, it soon goes wrong. They're put in this wonderful garden, and there's a tree in the middle of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to them, you can eat from all of these wonderful trees in this whole garden. But this one tree says you're not to eat from that one. He says, on the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And we probably know the story. It's not long before the serpent comes along. And the serpent tempts Eve and says, look how good this fruit is. And Eve eats from the fruit. And then Adam eats from the fruit. And everything is shattered. The humans who are meant to live God's way have gone... No, no, we want to be gods ourselves. They turn away. They turn their hearts away from God, and they go their own way. Sin, as the Bible calls it, and wickedness has entered the world. And the story from there in chapter 3 through to chapter 6 is just a story of this problem getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The very next chapter, Genesis 4, we find two brothers, one of whom gets jealous of the other and kills him. 
So by the time we get to chapter 6, God looks down and this sin, this what started with this one turning of a heart away from God, has suddenly filled the earth with wickedness, even to the extent of their thoughts. The author tells us everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Even what was in here, what was going on that no one else knew about, was consistently evil. And this hurt God. The text tells us it broke his heart. Literally, it caused pain to his heart. It was like daggers sticking his heart every time someone committed wickedness. It was like the pain inflicted upon a parent by a naughty child. And it's so painful for God, so hard for God, that he even says he regrets making humans. The beings who were the very pinnacle of his creation, the the only ones made in his image, made to be his representatives upon the earth. He now says he regrets even making them. And so as he looks down, he decides he's going to have to take action. He knows he has to do something. He decides, basically, he's going to start again. A little bit later, he says, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. This can be a really difficult thing for us to stomach. We read it and think, wow, God, God did that. And it's good, actually, to acknowledge when we find things that the Bible says hard. And often the idea of God's judgment is something we really do struggle with. Even as Christians, we can really feel, well, can we be comfortable with the idea that God judges? And friends, I want to humbly suggest that sometimes when we come to things in the Bible, we say, I'm not sure my God could do that. The problem is not with what the Bible says or with what God's done. The problem lies in our view of God. People who say, well, I can't take that bit of the Bible because I don't like what God does there. My God would never do that. That very statement, my God, is revealing of the problem. So often we create a God in our own image, a God that we, is how we want him to be, not actually the God that the Bible says he is. When we truly understand who God is, we understand that everything he does in the Bible is an expression of his character. And the thing we've got to understand, to understand why here God judges, is that God is a holy God. God is perfectly holy. Now, holiness is a very foreign concept to us. To be holy means to be separate, to be other. And it means to be perfect in all moral virtues and values. It's about complete and utter perfection. And God, because he is holy, because he is utterly perfect, cannot mix with anything that is imperfect. And so humans who turn their hearts away from God, as we all do, who sin, as the Bible says, this wickedness that's talked about in this story, cannot be in relationship with God. The holiness of God and the wickedness of human beings cannot join together. And so when God judges... And God pours out what the Bible calls his wrath. That means his just and fair anger against sin. It's not kind of an arbitrary thing. It's not God on a bad day. It's not the dark side of God. It's an expression of his character. It's an expression of who he is and the core of his being, that he is a holy God who cannot mix with anything which is unholy. And the problem is that all of us start life unholy. All of us start with our hearts, just like Adam and Eve did, orientated away from God. We, we go our own way. We do our own thing. We worship things down here, created things, rather than worshiping him, the creator. And that means that actually all of us deserve God's judgment. All of us ultimately deserve nothing from God but death. The fair response of God to our actions is that we should die. And so, actually, when we understand who God is, it's not odd that God would judge anyone, but it's astounding that God would ever save anyone. The question we so often ask was, well, how could God do that? How could God judge? How could God condemn? When actually understanding who God is helps us see the real question is, 
how could God save anyone? The question is not, well, how could God kill anyone? The question is, why has God not already killed me? And the answer is that God is holy and God is merciful and God is incredibly, incredibly loving. We see this even by the fact that there's humans alive in Genesis 6. In Genesis 2, when God tells them not to eat of this one tree in the middle of the garden, he says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And in a sense, that happens. The moment they eat from the fruit, the relationship between Adam and Eve and God is, is kind of severed. They're sent out of the garden, no longer living with God, no longer under his rule and blessing. A, a spiritual death has taken place. But in another way, they didn't die physically for a number of years. They lived a life like you and I do. Even in that, God is gracious and merciful in letting sinful humans, as you and I start, live a life. And so even the fact there are people alive here in Genesis 6 is testament to the loving, merciful nature of God's heart. But as God looks across, he sees that the great extent of wickedness, even down to what they're thinking in their heads, he decides he's got to do something. But he isn't happy to give up completely. God loves the creation. God loves the humanity. He's made far, far too much to totally give up. And so he decides to make a way through. He's going to preserve this pinnacle of his creation because of his love, because of his mercy. Not because any of them deserve anything at all from him, but just because he loves them. He chooses one man and his family, Noah. The story tells us Noah found favor with the Lord. God chooses to save him in order to preserve humanity. Noah wasn't special. He'd not done anything good. He couldn't do anything to make himself unwicked or make himself better. It's just that God said, no, I'm a God of love and I'm going to pick you. And if you read on the story, this is chapter 6, you go to verse 9, you'll see it says there, Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man walking with God. That almost certainly is explaining Noah's actions in the story. It's not saying Noah was the good guy, everyone else is the bad guys. It's saying Noah was righteous and walked with God in the fact that in the story you're about to see, he does everything God says. Noah is an example of faith who says, I see what God says and I'm going to step into it and do that. And so God comes to this man Noah and God gives him a gift. He, he warns him of what's coming and gives him instructions about how to avoid the coming flood. So let's pick up the story, verse 14 now. God says to Noah, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stools throughout its interior. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. But I will confirm my covenant, my agreement with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. God looks down, looks down across every person. Every person is wicked. But God goes along, he says, I'm going to preserve, I'm going to preserve this humanity because I love them. And he picks one person, nothing special about him, no reason for picking him, nothing good he's done, nothing he could do to deserve this. But he picks the man Noah and his family, his wife and their wives. And he looked thrilled about it. And God gives to him, come up here Noah, come up here. God gives to Noah a gift. When God gives him the instructions saying the flood's coming, you need to get in the ark, he's giving Noah a gift, which Noah can now open up. And so this gift means Noah knows what's coming. Noah knows there's a flood coming. Everyone looks around and thinks, we don't get floods here. Noah knows what's happening. 
and he knows how to avoid it. God has promised that if he gets in the boat, if he gets in the ark, he will be saved, he will be spared. Rather than dying, he will have life. You see, God's giving him this free gift, nothing he's done to get it, just because God is a God of love. And now Noah has a choice. He's got this gift, he's got this instruction. He has a choice. Is he going to believe God? Is he going to trust in God's way of escape, God's way of salvation? He looks around and he thinks there's no rain, there's no history of flooding, life seems to be continuing as normal. People around him are going to look at him, he thinks, if I build an ark, people will say, he's crazy, why is he building an ark? What's he doing? He's got to make a choice. Is Noah going to just kind of ignore God's promise and say, well, I don't need that anyway, I'm fine on my own? Or is Noah going to take hold of what God has given him and receive the salvation he's promised? Well, Noah makes the sensible decision of deciding he's going to take hold of the gift that God has given him. He builds the boat, he gets everything ready and does everything that God has commanded him to do. And this story, you'll notice throughout it, Noah's completely silent. He never talks, but the text just says Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Noah trusts God. Noah goes, I'm going to take hold of this gift that God has given me, and I'm going to respond and take hold of it by faith. He could have just done nothing. He could have said, well, the offer's still there. He could have said, I've got the gift. He would have the gift from God, but I'm not going to receive it. I don't need that. I don't want that. But instead, he says, no, I'm going to take hold of it. He trusts God. He has faith in God's promise and takes hold of it. And then the flood comes. And Noah, you need to bring this to life for us, please, as, uh, as I read this out. When Noah, <laughs> when Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah got into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal. In the boat. Domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two, they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind him. The rains start. The springs of the earth start bubbling up. The flood comes. The earth is covered in water. But Noah and his family, very good, are safe inside the ark. They've trusted God's promise. They've put themselves in this gift, this offer of salvation, so they can be safe. And did you notice that little phrase at the end said, and God shut the door. God himself comes along and he shuts the door. You see, the effectiveness of this salvation, the guarantee that these guys would not die in the flood, was not based on anything that Noah did, not based on anything his wives or his sons or their wives did. It was based on the one who was saving them. It was based on God. God shuts the door. God ensures single-handedly that this ark will preserve them. This promise that they have received by faith will save them. The flood continues for months. And right at the very, very pinnacle of this story, the author writes, but God remembered Noah. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. 
The waters subside, the ark comes to rest on a mountain. And Noah and his family emerge from the ark into a new creation. This is a totally new creation. You know, the flood had been a reversal of creation. If you read Genesis 1, where we read about how the world's created, it all starts with watery chaos. And creation is about a separation of the waters and about bringing order into the chaos. When the flood comes, it's doing exactly the opposite. The waters that God has separated come back. They cover the earth again. The flood is a total decreation. So when Noah gets out of the boat into the world where the waters have subsided... He's coming out into a new creation. And the author who writes this story wants us to get that. And when he tells us about what Noah does next, he uses language deliberately echoing Genesis 1. So as we listen, we think, wow, Noah's in a new creation. This is like a a fresh start. We read, then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then a bit later, we read, for God made human beings in his own image, language of Genesis 1. Now be fruitful and multiply. And repopulate the earth. Noah has emerged, having been saved by this gift of God, into a new creation to enjoy new life with God. Noah has been saved through his faith in the gift that God freely gave him to experience life with him in a new creation. Thank you very much, Noah. But then as time goes on, we find the flood didn't actually solve the problem. We find people kept rebelling against God. We find that people continue to be wicked. And we look around the world today and we see this is still a problem. We look around, we see war. We see abuse. We see injustice. We see slavery, murder, rape, corruption. Wickedness is still filling the earth. And even more scarily, we look in our own hearts and we find it's still there too. We find hatred and envy and anger and hurtful intentions and selfishness. The problem still remains. The flood saved Noah, it preserved humanity, but the problem still remains. And the Bible shows us that as well as the problem remaining, actually there's a greater flood coming. Noah's flood was just a little faint picture, a little faint trailer of actually what's coming at the end of history. The Bible is very clear. There's a day when every person, every man and woman will stand before God, give an account for the way they've lived their lives. And Peter, the apostle, one of the early followers of Jesus, when he's writing one of his letters, which is in the New Testament, he deliberately joins these two things. He says in chapter 3, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's the Genesis 1 story. And that by means of these waters... The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood and Noah. But by the same word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Bible is very clear that the flood was just this little faint picture of a day that's coming when you and I, every person, will stand before God and give an account for the way we've lived our lives. God will judge and sin and wickedness will be punished. But again, the amazing, amazing thing is that God is not happy to leave us there. Even though that's utterly what we deserve, even though God is totally within his rights, it's totally a just and fair thing for him to do to condemn us all to death. Actually, he decides not to abandon us to the waters of judgment. Instead, God decides to send a greater and better ark. God decides to send his son, Jesus. 
God himself comes to our aid. He takes on human flesh. He lives a perfect life and endures a horrific death. And as Jesus hangs dying on a Roman cross, the one who is utterly sinless, who never did anything wrong, our sins are placed upon him. And as he hangs there and as he dies, he experiences the wrath, the the judgment and condemnation of God that you and I deserve. As Jesus dies on the cross, he is going under the waters of judgment that should be for you and for I. Just as Noah's contemporaries died in the waters of God's judgment, Jesus willingly dies for us and goes under the waters of judgment. The wrath that we deserve gets poured out upon him. But unlike Noah's contemporaries, Jesus didn't stay in the water. uh, Noah's contemporaries died and remained dead. Jesus died, but three days later, he rose again. Having been through the waters of judgment, Jesus raises out of them up into new life with God, new creation body, new life with God. Just as this ark had gone through the waters of judgment and had come out the other side when the waters receded into new creation, new life, and Noah emerged to new life with God, so Jesus goes through the waters of death and judgment, but rises again into new creation, new life with God. Jesus is the greater and better ark. And the whole story of Noah and the ark was actually just a trailer. It's just the little flavor, the the foreshadowing, the picture to point us to the greater and better one who would come. It points us forward to Jesus. And now you and I, we are placed in the position of Noah. We're the ones now who need saving from this coming flood, and God now offers us a way of escape. God gives us, just as he gave Noah that gift, God gives us a gift. God gives us the chance to get in the ark of Jesus, to escape these waters of judgment. But just like Noah, we have to choose to accept it. We have to choose to step into that boat, to put our faith in the promise of God, to trust that he will save us when those waters come. And baptism, what we're going to see in just a few minutes' time, is a picture of this. It's a picture of these people being put in the ark of Jesus and going through the waters of judgment and coming out again into new life. Baptism says, I know there's a judgment coming. It says, I know that the waters will come for me, but I am trusting in Jesus, the greater and better ark, to rescue me. It says, I'm getting into the ark to protect me so that the waters can't touch me. And again, Peter links the story of Noah and the idea of baptism. In the first letter of his in the New Testament, he says this. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying Noah and the ark, it's all meant to be a picture of what Jesus does. A picture of the judgment that's coming, but of the rescue that God offers us. And baptism is a picture of this being saved. It's us being put in the position of Noah. And Peter here also clarifies for us what baptism actually is, or what in a sense it actually does. He starts, he says, baptism now saves you. But then he clarifies it. Not, he says, as a removal of dirt. It's not that as you go into the water, you kind of brush off the worst bits as if a quick sprinkle of some water could get rid of the the wickedness and the sin, the unholiness that separates us from the holy God. It's not like that, he says. It saves you as an appeal to God for a good conscience. 
Because baptism is a way of saying, I know I've done wrong. I know I'm worthy to receive judgment, but I am trusting in Jesus to take me through these waters, to rescue me, to bring me into new life with him. And Peter says this happens through the resurrection of Jesus. The only reason any of this is possible is because Jesus himself has already gone through the waters in his death and has come out of the waters through his resurrection to new life with God. And so today what our three friends are doing is saying, I've got into the ark of Jesus. So that when the waters of judgment come, I will pass safely through. It will not be because of anything they've done. It won't be because they're special people or they've tried hard or they've done lots of religious things. It's purely because God loves them, offers this gift as he does to all of us. And they said, yes, I'm going to take hold of it. And I'm getting in the ark because I know I need saving. Just like Noah, they, will, they have been saved by grace through their response of faith. And friends, this is true for any and all of us here today who have put our trust in Jesus, who have accepted this gift of salvation. And there's so many things we could say as to why this matters, why this is so wonderful. But there's one thing I feel I want to stress today. This means for any of us here who've trusted in Jesus, who said, I'm getting in that ark, we have incredible, incredible security in him. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you've got into the ark, There is an utter and absolute certainty that you will never and can never come under the judgment of God again. You will never experience the wrath of God in this life or in the life to come. There are no holes in the ark of Jesus. You do not need to do anything to kind of plug up the holes. Nothing you do can make a hole in the the body of the ark so the water comes crushing in. It is safe, it is secure because of what Jesus has done. There is not even any spray from the water. Sometimes you're in a boat and it's really kind of choppy and even though you're on the boat, you're getting wet from the spray. There is no spray reaching you from the waters of judgment when you're in the ark of Jesus. You are totally, totally enclosed, totally, totally safe for all time. And remember, God closed the door. The effectiveness of your salvation is not dependent upon anything you do or ever could do. It is utterly dependent on the one who saves you and what he has already done and already completed. Friends, if you're here today and you are in the ark of Jesus, you've already made that step to say, I'm getting in, I'm trusting him. You are safe, you are secure forever. The wrath of God can never, will never touch you again. The band would like to come back up. So I'll just sum up. Why does all this matter to us? I think there's three things particularly. First of all, it matters because we are going to celebrate right now with the people getting baptized today. As these three friends get baptized, we are going to celebrate the fact they've chosen to get into that ark, that they will never again come under the judgment of God, that they now have been raised into new life to enjoy with him. For those of us here today who are Christians who know and love Jesus, it's a chance for us to wonder again at the amazing security we have in him. And to wonder again that God himself would come down, would go through the waters of judgment for us because of his love. Not because we had any reason to claim it, but because he loved us and he wanted to rescue us. Friends, this should cause us to want to worship and sing and dance and shout and give all of our lives to the one who came to be an ark for us. And finally, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've not heard any of this before. Maybe you have and you've not felt it's for you. Let me tell you, friend, you can get in the ark today. You can choose today to take hold of the gift that God is offering and say, I'm getting in the ark. I'm going to trust Jesus to rescue me. 
You can have the joy of giving your whole life to him, walking his path, knowing you'll find true fulfillment by living the way that he created you to live with him as your Lord and your King. You can start new life, having been through the waters with Jesus, to enjoy life with him. If that's you today, don't miss the opportunity, please, to um, find out more. Do come find myself or one of the guys at the front here. We'd so love to talk with you when we close today's meeting. And if you'd like, we can pray with you. For now, though, we're going to let our hearts respond to this by worshipping. If you've got children in tots or in energy, please do collect them as we sing this song. Children from Engage will also be returning to us. And then we will all be together to celebrate together with our friends as uh, they get baptised. So let's stand. And let's respond to God in worship.